0: Welcome to Training Unleashed, the show that will help you design and deliver training that's off the chain and will make a difference. Now, here's your host, Evan Hackle.
1: Welcome to another exciting edition of Training Unleashed. Uh, Today, we're truly fortunate to have a person that I consider uh, just one of the all-time great uh, training executives. Uh, I had the pleasure of working with this gentleman. I'd like to say I had the pleasure of hiring him, uh, but I had, the ple- pleasure, I had the pleasure of approving his hire. Um, and uh, I, I got the privilege of, of working with him directly for eight years. And uh, this, this is a gentleman that knows how to make a difference. Um, you know, it's interesting because I'm going to have him share with you a little information on what happened, but it was actually after I left the company. So I take no credit for it. It's totally Tony. Uh, But in 2008, he became the head of training for a company called ProSource Wholesale Floor Covering. And Tony, why don't you just share with everyone, first off, say hi, everyone, share with everyone the volume and average ProSource in 2008 and what it is today.
2: Thank you, Evan. Thank you for having me. In 2008... I uh, took a full-time role with uh, as a training executive for ProSource. And uh, when I got there in 2008, the average showroom was about $1.2 on 1.3 million million. Um, today, in 2018, um, the average account manager is doing about $1.5 million. Um, each showroom has four to eight account managers. So it's grown from about $1.2 to $6 million on the average per showroom with 145 showrooms in existence today.
1: Yeah. And this is an amazing statistic. And the other thing that's amazing is that there was more floor covering sold in 2008 than there is being sold in 2018.
2: Um, and, and that that's, has a lot to do with the uh, credibility in the process and the behavior of a lot of good people at ProSource.
1: Yeah. And I know you're modest because I can already tell you're giving credit to everybody, but that's okay. Um the thing that I love about you, and the thing that I love about Prosource, for that matter, is the commitment to training to make a difference. And let's just start there. How did training? How did? How do you think about training and and making a difference and and the impact the training actually has on business?
2: I believe that the training executive and the training team is really the conduit of change for any organization. Um, the A trainer has a very unique position in that um, they get the opportunity many times to hear the problems and the issues at the executive level, but more importantly, they are tuned in, I guess is as good a word as possible. They're tuned in to the motivation, to why an account manager or a manager or a supporting staff member, what makes them tick, what makes them extremely excited about their job, what frustrates them about their job, and behavior changes at the rank and file level, you have to be able to communicate in a way that is important to that individual. It's, it's the CEO it's the adage that uh, what's in it for me? I've always believed that every and every one of us has the station that plays in our head all the time, and it's it's W I I F M. It's that station that's what's in it for me. Why is it important for me to listen? Why is it important for me to change? And when you have that unique positioning of being able to to hear that, uh, when you're a trainer and you're facilitating a group, if it's five or fifty or five hundred, you get a chance to get the pushback. Anytime you're sharing a new procedure, a new process, a new behavior uh, at a, uh, at a classroom type of level, you get the pushback. You hear all the reasons why they think something will not work. And that puts you in a position to understand what motivates that employee, what motivates that person. And if you're, if you are a good listener, most people think trainers have to be great speakers, but you have to be a great listener to understand that motivation and be able to relate a change or a process or a procedure in a way that it becomes important to the listener. And when you can do that, you can make lasting change in that listener. And that's, that's the role of, of every training agent out there.
1: And, and I totally agree with you. And I would say, you know, if you, if you remember Tony, the premise of this, uh, of this podcast is that training done right unleashes amazing results. Absolutely. And from my perspective, the issue in the field isn't so much that we don't have capable trainers. It's how do we get the what's in it for me at the C level at the, you know, the decision maker level to allow people the ability to effectuate that change. And
2: well, yeah. When you're in that position, um, I, have, I have worked for lots of different companies. I've, I've worked in lots of different positions. I've spent probably 25 years of my career as a trainer, per se. And I have fought tooth and nail to get the seat at the grown-ups table, to get a seat at the executive level, to be able to sit in every executive meeting, uh, and to become the advocate of the employee, Uh the if you're a conduit of change from the executive level to the rank and file, then you also have to be an advocate for the rank and file. So you can share those feelings, those frustrations to executives so they can understand because they, they will understand, but somebody has to be there to speak for them. And so I've always saw my position as a, as an advocate for that rank and file as the speaker on their behalf, but then also the speaker for the executive team to carry back those, those issues, those processes and put them in a way that the, the individual at whatever level can understand it, can see value in it and will make lasting change.
1: Totally agree with you. And I think in most companies, the person in the role of training isn't at that table.
2: And And that's, that's unfortunate.
1: Yeah. And they're not at that table. And it hurts in, in two ways. One, they're getting the needs and the goals of the company in that information second or third-handed. Two, they aren't in part of the conversation to understand the underlying issues and, and concerns.
2: True, and the, and the real value to the company overall.
1: Right. So I, I, the question I ask is, how did you get to the table? What did I, you say <laughs> to get you to the table?
2: Evan, I somewhat forced my way, um, to that position. I, um, uh, I, I uh, most recently uh, for the last eight years have answered directly to the president of the company. Um, and, in, in being in that position, I kind of forced my way into that position. I felt like that every chance that I had to speak to any of the executive team, I spoke as an advocate of the, of the rank and file, but also, um, I have an accounting degree. I understand p and I was able to actually communicate at a level that the executives would appreciate um, and kind of forced my way for lack of a better way of putting it. I kind of demanded a seat at the table.
1: Well, you know, they say that you don't get what you don't ask
2: for in this world. So, yeah. And sometimes, sometimes you have to demand it, but yes, that's absolutely true.
1: Yeah. No, 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 no doubt about it. So Um, You're at the table, you listen, you hear, and now what's the next step? How do you take, okay, I see the company has this goal, how you take it from that idea to what it is that actually needs to happen, to what you need to build and craft to make it happen, to the execution and actually going from there. Just walk us through your thinking process.
2: Right, well, most people see training as selling, uh, selling multiple people at the same time. Um, when And I've always thought that, that the that the term selling was, was a really bad term. It gave people the wrong impression. Um, I've been in rooms of 5 to 50 to 500 people, and I've asked the question, how many of you have like being sold by a salesperson? Nobody raises their hand. But if you ask them this right behind that question, how many of you like to buy stuff? Everybody likes to buy stuff. And so it's very important when you're trying to share an idea is to not sell the idea, but to put it and phrase it in a way that makes it easy for the listener to buy in. Now, that's true at the executive level. That's true at the management level. That's true at the sales level, at the self supporting level. Um, and so first and foremost, don't try to sell others on your ideas. Try to make it easy for them to buy in, which means you've got to be a great listener. Listen to the executive. Listen to the emotion. Listen to the, the need. And use that as the very reason for them to buy in to the change that's necessary. You do that by being, again, very close to the, the wants and the desires of the, whoever the student body may be. Sometimes it is a group of owners as in a franchise system. Sometimes it's a group of managers. Uh, sometimes it's a group of sales staff. Um, and you share with the executive team what their pushback is going to be and, and what's necessary in order to get past that or to get around that or get through that. And it's only then do executive the executive level normally give you the What you need, whether it's whether it's whether it's money, whether it's time, whatever it happens to be. But don't try to sell the executives. Don't try to sell the the student. Make it easy for both to buy into what they really need and stop selling. Make it easy to buy. That is the the focus of, of what should be the focus, I believe, of every training executive, every training team.
0: We're so glad you're listening to this episode of Training Unleashed, brought to you by Tortal Training. The difference between Tortal Training and other online training companies is we're primarily a training company with technology, rather than a technology company that does training. Want to find out more? Just go to Tortal.net. That's T-O-R-T-A-L, Tortle.net.
1: Now let's go the other direction. Sure. Okay. So we spent a lot of time talking about getting buy-in at the executive level, and sometimes there's resistance in the field. And the Most people the got to actually training, and you talked about what's in it for me, which is clear. How do you get buy-in from the learner? The learner should take the time, and you know I happen to know very well because we worked together at the place you had a lot of successful people. And I think you'll, you'll agree. No shortage of egos.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah. Nothing wrong with that. Egos right. are good, but how, do, how do you get the learner to say, you know what, I'm going to take the time and I'm going to be humble enough to see that there's a potential that I'm actually going to learn something.
2: Um, I believe that most of us learn through storytelling. So let me tell you a story, let me tell you a, a situation, a process. Um, in the in the uh, franchise system that I've, I've worked for the last eight years specifically for, the, the, uh, the sales force was organized uh, based on territories. Uh, that's to say that their income and their performance accountability of each and every account manager, which was the selling force for this business, um, was based on the buying habits of a portfolio of trade professional buyers assigned specifically to each account manager. Now, When you hire a new account manager, that new account manager would build that portfolio using outbound calls and letters and emails to a list of prospects of potential trade professionals that could see value in the product and services that this company offered. Now, the the problem was that this process is time consuming. Sometimes it would take 18 months or two years for them to build enough trust in those new trade professionals in the, in the company's products and services for them to actually generate enough volume to create a rewarding career. Um, unfortunately, very competent new employees weren't generating personal income fast enough. And this resulted in turnover and, and high turnover is a double-edged sword when you're in the relationship building business because if the face of the account manager continues to change, then the trade professional loses trust, and when they lose trust, they will buy from a different supplier. So a couple of years back, the average brand new account manager, one year of, of, of service, was producing about $550,000 in volume, where the average account manager that was two years old or long, or more was producing three times that on average. So the challenge was, how do we accelerate the ramp-up process of a new account manager? Without them having to work long hours and work harder just to get the volume. And we set a goal of having that new account manager produce a million dollars the first year, not 500 or 550,000. Um, and the goal was not just to produce the million dollars, which the executive team would love to have that million dollars from that new producer, but it was also to create enough pride in the new employee and enough substantial income in the employee to, to reduce and or eliminate the turnover. Um, you know, m- almost everybody leaves an employer because of poor work-life balance or low earning potential. So we were trying to, to cover both of those with one swoop. Now, those account managers that had the two or three years were, uh, there was very low turnover. They were producing great income. They were, they were happy with themselves and with their work. They loved the hours. Everything was working great. So collaborated with a data analyst team, and we we determined that these existing territories, those portfolios of business, had a lot of buyers that had bought in the last 12 months, but there also was a very direct correlation that there were a number of them that had slowed down their purchases, that had not purchased at all in the last three to six months, where the average was buying every 30 to 45 days and kind of stole this from RFM, recency, frequency, monetary value, which is a a formula, a process that a lot of marketing companies use. We looked at that frequency, and we determined that, was it possible? We, We kind of surmised. Was the slowdown in buying habits by this particular group of trade professionals was it because they weren't getting enough love, not getting enough attention, not, not having the, their current account manager stay in touch with them enough? And if we put those in the hands of, an, of a new employee, would that time that that new employee had, the energy that the new employee had, rejuvenate this valuable business relationship? That was That was the challenge. Now, to do that, we would have to quite literally rebalance territories, take away from the existing and give to the new. And so that creates a lot of pushback.
1: Yeah, I can see that.
2: Yeah. So we sat down and we created a process to recognize who those unengaged trade professionals were within each portfolio for each account manager. Uh, We created a simple dialogue for the franchise owners and for the sales managers to use when they discussed these unengaged trade professionals with their account managers we took some historical data and showed the account manager that the time and attention they're spending with these unengaged, if they were spent with their more engaged trade professionals, it would actually generate a, quite a bit additional business for them and not take away their time. They were kind of wasting their time or not, prov- not providing enough time and attention to them. We, um, also let the account manager know that they would have time. They would have about 60 days to try to re-energize these trade professionals that had unengaged and slowed down. And during that time, the manager would be trying to recruit, hire, and train the new employee. So they were both working together at the same pace at the same time. Um, we created a, a protocol, a transition protocol of how to actually – rebalance those territories once that new employee was hired and onboarded. The result, one year into this process, the average new account manager was doing $960,000 a year, not five fifty, dollars Almost a million. It didn't quite make our million-dollar mark the first year. But more importantly, the existing account managers that had, for lack of a better term, lost those accounts – actually on average did three hundred thirty thousand dollars more that year than they had done the previous year so by literally giving up some they recognized a tremendous boost in their revenue producing. the new account manager didn't virtually a million dollars and that that substantial progress in just one year not didn't just provide the executive team the volume but it provided every new employee reason to celebrate. And so focusing on what's important at each level is the only way to find the solution. And those solutions are there. You just focus on what's important at each level and they can be found and they can actually be implemented. And that's, that's just one example of that process.
1: So so I love the story. I'm going to take a second. I'm going to highlight what I heard. Sure. Immense transparency in the process. Absolutely. You know, you were, you were explaining everything to everyone what their benefits were. Uh, you set targets, you set goals, you set KPIs. Absolutely. So people could see what wins were. And I love the fact that you addressed that, hey, they have to be at this level to make a certain level of income. Yes. Or you can't keep them. And you know, it's, it's interesting because I, I find, and I run into this all the time, where people are dealing with incredibly high turnover And they can't keep employees because of compensation. And they never, never is too strong a term, but there is a resistance for people to say, how do I refigure the job? How do I refigure the outcome so that we can afford to pay people more?
2: And in this situation, we did not change the compensation for existing people. We did not change the compensation model for the new people. What we changed was an, an element of the assets that were available. The most valuable assets that a company has is those buying customers. When those customers stop buying or slow down their buying, then you're losing a valuable asset and getting the executive team management team and the individual account managers to recognize that asset loss was a key to bringing a solution. And as you said, it was about total transparency, letting everybody know up front, what was available, what was happening, and, and how we were going to put up a solution.
1: So clearly can see the profound difference that you you had on the company. How did the company view this? Does the company value training? Did uh, the marketing people say, no, no, it was really our improved direct marketing campaign? You know, How, how did victory get shared at the company?
2: It's, that's, that's a great question. It's, uh, it's usually said that when sales are up, marketing takes all the credit. When sales are down, training has a new job to do. And so I totally understand that logic. Um, we actually collaborated, our department collaborated directly with marketing. We provided, um, marketing for the existing account managers to let them know that, um, uh, let their, their, account managers uh, let their trade professionals understand and know about this rebalancing to share the reasons why we created marketing to introduce the new account manager to those existing trade professionals. Um, marketing kind of stood, you know, on the stage with us in, in the celebration. And so it is, I think it's important uh, that collaboration with every department and that uh Clearly not hiding anything and have true uh, uh, visibility around your process with everyone is an important element of that.
1: So your answer is like perfect. I I wasn't 100% sure when I asked the question that was the answer I was going to get. I was pretty sure that was the answer I was going to get. But I just want to really highlight for everyone listening the importance of transparency and collaboration. That, you know, getting that seat at the table um, working together collaboratively, integrating a solution as opposed to myopically just saying, you know, this is, this is our role, this is what we do, and not looking at how you combine that with every other part of the company. Because ultimately people win when the company wins and that when egos become uh, too enlarged, uh, unfortunately, it, it, it in many cases – the training department loses. Um, and, uh, and, and, and that, and that's tough. And, um, you know, really, you know, it comes back to having a seat at the table, right? Because then it really does. Yeah. That's when you can really talk to other people as peers and, and have meaningful, meaningful conversations. And it's, you know, I know because I used to work at the company. That the company really looked at training as a key differentiator of success, because uh, great ideas are great ideas. They're success when you execute, and you can't execute without great training.
2: Yeah, and and one more element of that, uh, Evan. The most every department in every company uh, has uh, a and L of sorts, and so many years ago, I. Coined a phrase that I do not operate a PL, I operate a PI. It's either a profit or it's an investment. And so that investment that's being made in training is a real number. It's a real expense, a real cost, um, but it is an expense and a cost that um, this franchise system has invested in wholeheartedly, uh, without hesitation. Um, and that allows the training department to focus on their customer, their student, instead of focusing on selling. It's, it's trying to sell the training, um, and that I think is probably one of the key elements of the real um, value that training brought to this particular franchise system, because there was an investment. It was an it was a it was an I, not a P, on the bottom yeah. line of that P and L statement.
1: And and I I should point out here, and I think this is important for the listeners to understand, because we are talking about a business that was in the franchising business, is unlike a normal business where management can control every step of the phase, you have to get buy-in from the franchisee. In addition to that, they have to commit sometimes dollars and sometimes time of their staff. So that franchisee has got to sit back and say, hey, this was worth it for me. I got my, as you said, investment back in dividends.
2: And with the franchise system, they, in every case of training, invest both. They're investing dollars, whether it's travel, hotel, flights, meals, uh, and certainly investing time for uh, facilitated events, whether they're regional or nationwide. And so at the franchise level, every training element is an investment of, of both types. And so it has to bring value.
1: Tony, I really appreciate you ha- having you on the show. As you know, we end every show where I ask everybody for, you know, one idea, one suggestion that you want to share with everyone here. Uh, I know that you're going to share right now having a seat at the table. Absolutely. I know that. So I- I'm going to ask you for a second, gem.
2: All right. Well, I... I- that I, I can't, I can't. I have to tell you, a training executive must have a seat at the grown-ups table. They must be a part of every executive meeting because it's at those meetings that the problems that face the organization are discussed. And unfortunately, no disrespect to any executive, but many times the executive team is too far removed from those day-to-day activities that every employee faces uh, to, in order to recognize the barriers that exist, whether they're real or imagined that prevent that employee from embracing any kind of new behavior changes. And so the trainers and training executives, especially those that facilitate training events on behalf of the organization, they're keenly aware of those barriers because they're exposed to them. They, they, they get the pushback when they're doing a training event and they understand it puts them in a very unique position. Um, with this kind of understanding, a training executive can interpret the organization's problems, they can anticipate the employee's reactions to any kind of necessary changes, and they can offer real and lasting solutions that they, that can be implemented, and everybody wins. Yeah. When, when you have firsthand knowledge of the business impact and you have hands-on experience at the employee level, who better to formulate the right solution to the problem at hand than the training team?
1: Yeah. Well, I hope everyone listening has gotten... A tremendous amount out of this. I think Tony's advice is uh, something uh, of significance, and, and I think it's a game changer, a, a real game changer. So, Tony, thank you very much uh, for being on our show and our
2: listeners for listening. Thanks for having me.
1: Take care. Everyone,
0: have a great day. This has been Training Unleashed, but it doesn't stop here. Just go to trainingunleashed.net to subscribe to the show. That way, you'll never miss an episode and you'll be well on your way to delivering training programs that are off the chain. We'll talk to you next time on Training Unleashed.
1: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.